Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. But today on the show, we're not doing that. We are talking about our top 10 first-time watches of 2022. As he's done in the past, Josh Bell from Awesome Movie Year joins me, and we make a list of some of our favorite movies that aren't new, but are new to us. And uh, it's always a fun way to look back at all the things that we watched in the previous year that aren't new releases that make our top 10 list episode. So uh, yeah, we got a great conversation coming up. Lots of great movies to talk about. And before we get to it, I want to remind you, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And I've gotten a lot of recommendations for some of these movies we're going to talk about. You could also check out our Patreon, the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I post bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, from Awesome Movie Year, and from my music career. Lots of great stuff over there on the Patreon. As a matter of fact, this episode's going on the Patreon as soon as I export it, and it'll hit the main feed whenever you're hearing it, most likely. But uh, yeah, lots of great stuff over there still waiting to be released that you could check out now. So again, it's patreon.com slash Rosen. If you want to support the show, you can sign up over there. But you could also just keep listening, and we appreciate that. So let's talk about some of our favorite first-time watches of 2022. Josh Bell is back with us to talk about some movies we watched this year that were new to us, but uh, maybe not so new, but that we really enjoyed. Josh, how's it going? Uh, It's going well. I'm ready for a new year of watching movies. That's right. There's there's plenty on my list, and oh man, where do we even fit them all? Still trying to catch up from the end of the year. I know. The end of the year is such a rush for people who watch a lot of movies like us. It is, and then I just have piles of movies from the ends of other years that I never got to. I'm going to really have to reassess my best of, you know, 2017 awards or something like that. (laughs) I was seriously thinking about that at at one point, like doing like a special episode every year, like, like reassessing maybe three years back or something, a whole new top 10 list. Like, it seems like it would just be like constant new content we can make for the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always, (laughs) always revisions. So I, at one point, went back all the way to like the early 1930s and did top 10 lists for every year on Letterboxd. And I can, mm-hmm. you know, keep revising those. 
as I uh, see new movies, but um, never ends. But my never more recent ends. top tens, I feel like they had to be set in stone somehow because I made them at the time. But I'm sure they would all be completely different now if I did them again. I'm sure. Well, we are today talking about movies we watched for the first time in 2022 that are not new movies. And uh, we did this last year, and uh, it's always a lot of fun to, to look at lists like this and just find some new favorites. And uh, I think we'll have a, a nice mix of uh, picks to talk about. But um, did you find any, like, themes or anything while going through your list? Anything that kind of, like, came together? I... Mm, I don't know if there were necessarily themes. I mean, I feel like for me, a lot of times what I end up with this list, especially if I don't have uh, tons of free time, is things that I happen to watch for articles and podcasts that ended up mm -hmm. sticking out to me. So if there's a theme, it's probably the theme being like, I wrote an article about this topic. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> um, sure. Or something like that. So, I mean, I try to to be wide ranging in my viewing, especially when I have the opportunity to just watch things for my own interest so um in a way maybe i'm trying to avoid a theme because i want to be as as broad as possible that is absolutely fair well, let's get into the lists and we'll talk more about it along the way what do you have for your number 10 so well speaking of uh of articles that i wrote my number 10 pick is one of uh, a couple i think on here that i watched for an article that i wrote about the noir in color collection on the criterion channel which was an excellent excellent uh lineup of film noir in color and so my number 10 pick as is... it should be based on the name yes but... exactly <laughs> yeah. but i mean it was i i was excited to watch these movies and i was glad that i was able to pitch an article to give myself a reason that i had to watch them that's always mm -hmm. good it's like i must sit down and watch all these criterion channel movies so yes. so my number 10 pick is a kiss before dying from 1956 directed by gerd oswald and this is, I think, one of the more famous ones of these, or at least this was one of the titles that I'd heard of. It is a great noir title, right? And yeah. um, it stars Robert Wagner, who I feel like became this sort of campy figure in his later years. I think most people probably know him as uh, number two in the Austin Powers movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the sure. older number two, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to Rob Lowe as the younger number two. And he yeah. did a lot of like soap opera stuff in his later life. But uh, he's really good here as this sort of sociopathic, almost like talented Mr. Ripley type figure who is determined to get in with this wealthy family and dates one of the daughters. And when she is sort of uh, not convenient to his plans, he kills her. And then when her sister is trying to investigate, he kills her and makes it look like a suicide. And her sister is determined that this is not a suicide and the cops are wrong and she's trying to investigate it. And then he assumes a new identity and is dating the sister, even as the sister is trying to find out who killed her sister, which is him, her fiance. Mm. So it's this twisty noir type plot. But he's he's great as this just absolute awful uh, amoral social climber guy who, of course, gets his comeuppance in the end. But it's just yeah. a very it's a fun, nasty kind of film noir movie and and shot in, in gorgeous Technicolor. So uh, that's A Kiss Before Dying. That's awesome. That, it sounds great. I, I've never seen it, but um, the, everything you're saying about it, it just sounds like 
my kind of movie. So yes. I definitely want to check that one out. Uh, it sounds awesome. Uh, my number 10 is a movie I think might end up on your list uh, because of a comment in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group. But over Christmas, I just watched for the first time Moonstruck, the 1987 Norman Jewison film with Cher and Nicolas Cage. And... Uh, it's just so much fun. You know, Cher is great. It's definitely one of the great Cage performances. And uh, spoiler alert, but I have another Nicolas Cage movie on my list coming up later. Uh, but it, he's he's having such a great, great time here. And he's having such a great time right now. It's so great to see him coming back. We talked about him some on our uh, top 10 of 2022 episode. But uh, this movie, they're, they're both awesome in it. It's funny. It's really sweet. It's it's weirdly dated in ways that make it even funnier. I feel like, and uh, it, it's also like kind of the ultimate Italian movie outside of Goodfellas, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just a great time, and uh, I had such such fun with it. Yes, you are correct that it will be on my list. We may have to wait a little while for, uh-huh. for it to show up, which means that I think I loved it maybe even more than you did. It was it's absolutely wonderful, a great movie. Awesome. Awesome. What do you got for number nine? So my number nine pick is a Christmas movie. And this is another thing that I was doing uh, just fairly recently, writing up a lot of roundups of Christmas movies that you can watch on various streaming services online and trying to fill out those lists by watching a few new ones. And uh, a movie that had been on my radar for a little while from 2019 called Feast of the Seven Fishes, Directed, uh, written and directed by Robert Tunnell, inspired in part by his own upbringing and childhood. And talk about Italian movies. <laughs> this mm. is a, a very, very rooted in the Italian-American experience film. The Feast of the Seven Fishes is an Italian-American tradition on Christmas Eve of cooking seven different types of seafood and eating them in this giant family meal on Christmas Eve. So... <laughs> It takes place right around this time. And uh, Skylar Gizondo or Gizondo, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but he's uh, he's kind of an underrated actor, but he's all over the place. And he's the star as Tony takes place in 1983 in a small town in Pennsylvania. This, this kind of Rust Belt town that looks like it came from like a Bruce Springsteen or Billy Joel song or something like that. Sure. And uh, he's... He's a working class guy. He works in his family's grocery store, but he really wants to go to art school. So it's kind of a coming of age thing. But then also he meets uh, this woman who is a college student. She's kind of more upper crust and she's not Italian-American and she's home for the holidays. And uh, Madison Eisman plays this woman that he meets. And of course, they fall in love over the course of the Christmas season. And he invites her to his home to enjoy the Feast of the Seven Fishes. And there's some you know, kind of across the tracks romance, you know, she's upper class and he's, you know, working class and her family doesn't approve and all this kind Mm. of stuff. But it's just very sweet and warm. And I think actually a lot like Moonstruck, it just has this wonderful, like boisterous family feel. And there is the romance and there is the coming of age story, but there's also just him and his family. Uh, Joe Pantoliano plays his one uh, uncle who's in the mob, wink, 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 you know, that kind uh-huh, of stuff. Sure. So it's just really, it's just a really nice movie. And you can tell that this guy, uh, the director has really drawn all this stuff from experiences that he had. So uh, Feast of the Seven Fishes. Yeah, it sounds fun. I, I hadn't even heard of this, but I will say that Skylar Cassando, um, he's he's kind of becoming the that guy yeah. of like this new generation, isn't he? Like he's he's really kind of carving out a niche for himself. Yeah, I mean he's he's good at playing. I think these sort of like smarmy characters, but here he's mm-hmm. very uh, 
you know, vulnerable and emotionally open and whatever. And then he's good at that, too. I think he uh, he was on uh, what was that Netflix call a show uh, Santa Clarita Diet, where he plays. Yeah, the, sure. The, the, the sort of nerdy guy who's uh, awkward and trying to get the girl kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll go for number nine with a movie I watched, uh, not for Awesome Movie Year, but uh, right, you know, along with one of the movies we were covering. Um, I feel like any year that I'm going to watch a Martin Scorsese movie that I haven't watched before, it'll probably end up on my <laughs> first time watches uh, favorites list. Uh, this one's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, 1974. You know, it, it's just a really unique and amazingly put together film. Ellen Burstyn is so good as this woman just trying to survive in this small town and everything just feels so real and so lived in and you just get the feeling of like it, what it must be like for somebody in those like little, uh, you know, flyover state or, you know, the drive through on a cross country trip kind of places, the people who work in these diners and live in these little you know, little homes and, uh, it just really is drawn so well and so interesting. And of course it's Scorsese. So, you know, it, you're going to get that attention to detail, but everything about it really works so well. And, uh, it's also one of Jodie Foster's earliest roles and she's great in it. And, uh, everything about it is a standout. And it's just kind of one of those movies where you just feel like everybody in it is just really at the top of their game. Nice. Yeah, I saw that a long time ago, and I don't remember a ton about it. I believe we watched it, Jason and I, in our uh, film club that we've referenced a few times on Awesome Movie Year with, with Tony Macklin, the film critic that we used to have years ago, and it was one that he brought for us to watch. And I, I, I liked it, I think, but I don't remember a ton about it. Yeah, I'd say it's worth a revisit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, great movie. What do you have for uh, your number eight? So number eight is an awesome movie year related film. Like you were saying, it wasn't a movie that we uh, did an episode on, but that I watched in conjunction with our episode on Stanley Kubrick's Fear and Desire. And it's another early Stanley Kubrick film. It was his second film after Fear and Desire called Killer's Kiss. And um, like Fear and Desire, I feel like this is one that is not all that well known. Um, he made a few movies early in his career that didn't do a whole lot before he started to take off with Paths of Glory. And uh, this is just, I I, I kind of go back and forth on Stanley Kubrick, like later Stanley Kubrick, when he becomes such a big towering figure and he has a lot of leeway to do whatever <laughs> he wants and maybe yeah. is a bit too enamored of his own abilities. And this is a very streamlined, it's 67 minutes long. It's kind of a film noir crime drama about this uh, this boxer who falls in love with his neighbor, who is the sort of gangster, uh, she's sort of like a gangster's mall, I guess is the word, right, you use for that. Okay. And uh, the gangster is not really too happy with this, uh, this mook taking away his lady. <laughs> so most of the movie is this, this guy sort of on the run from the gangsters through New York City, and um, it's got this kind of tough guy narration to it. And it's very evocative. It's maybe as a noir, it's less, there's not like a mystery to it or anything like that, you know? So it's a, it's a little more artsy, but um, I thought it was a really good combination of this tough film noir with Kubrick's more artistic ambitions. And actually for another podcast, I was a guest on uh, just a few weeks ago called It Pod to Be You. And we talked about Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's final film. And mm -hmm. 
this movie actually, I feel like with the 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 sort of tortured masculinity, uh, this guy wandering New York City, um, grappling with his uh, romantic life and what it means or whatever, actually kind of reminded me of Eyes Wide Shut. So, uh, hmm. but made many many years earlier. So that is Killer's Kiss from 1955. It's, uh, it sounds good. I haven't seen this one, and I definitely plan on, uh, you know, catching up with more of Kubrick's stuff. It sounds kind of Scorsese-ish uh, in the way you're describing it. Yeah, yeah, it could it could be. I mean, I think uh, this is what? This is earlier than Scorsese's earliest work. Sure. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the crime stuff and the, the uh, you know, examination of the identity in the gangster world. Yeah, I could see that. Right on. Well, my number eight is a movie I watched in the lead up to a new reboot sequel that came out this year. It is Hellraiser from 1987. Uh, I had somehow never seen the Hellraiser films, and uh, which is actually going to be a theme for a few of these things. They all feel like movies that I uh, I had to have seen, but I hadn't. But I watched the first two uh, before the reboot came out. The reboot was fine. It wasn't great, unfortunately. Yeah, it was a bit disappointing. Yeah. But this one is fantastic. It's just so gross. And the practical effects are amazing. Uh, it's really weirdly horny. And <laughs> the score is fantastic. Everything about it is so strange. And I went into it really expecting it to be like, you know, you, you always think about Pinhead in terms of like with Freddy and with Jason and all these slasher icons, I expected it to be like a slasher movie. And instead it's almost like a little shop of horrors type of movie where like this person has to bring sacrifices in a way. Uh, and it, it's just such a completely different movie than what I would have expected. And it's so much better for that. Yeah. I love Hellraiser. And I think when you watch this, I suggested watching the second one and I actually like the second one even better, which I, I imagine that you did not, but, um, yeah, those are those are both great. And I I this year watched all of the Hellraiser movies again because I wrote an article about them before the new Hellraiser came out. And and that's a that's a slog of an experience, really, because after those first none of those two, later ones made your list. No, no. Well, I, think I had seen them all already, except maybe the very last of like the straight to video sequels. So that would have been the only mm -hmm. one qualified for this list. But um no they're 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 bad they're they're yeah some of them are like the the third and fourth one are have some kind of camp to them but no they're yeah. not worth seeing but uh yeah hellraiser is great and um i i love clive barker so to me it was like it's obviously it's horny because everything that he writes sure. is super horny and kinky <laughs> and you know hellraiser is kind of mild compared to some of his books Right, right, yeah. And that's, you know, not to take it off track, but that's what it was, I think, missing from the new one, mm. is uh, any of that kind of, uh, any of that kind of vibe. I, I totally agree with you on that. Right on. Uh, what is your number seven? Well, my number seven is another movie that was sort of adjacent to an awesome movie year episode that we did. We had an episode on Les Blank's documentary garlic is as good as 10 mothers and so i watched a bunch of less blank documentaries uh, many of which are just are short films so i had the chance to do that but the big less blank movie the most well-known one that i watched for the first time is burden of dreams from 1982 his film mm -hmm. about the making of Werner herzog's Fitzcarraldo. and even though herzog is not the the director of this this is i feel like a defining document of sort of like the herzog persona and yeah. all of the things that we think of 
his existential musings in that very, very recognizable voice of his and the, the hubris of his crazy endeavors. He in, in Fitzcarraldo is, is hauling this full size ship up the side of a mountain because the, yeah. the character in Fitzcarraldo also did these kinds of insane things. And there's a blurring of the lines between Herzog and this crazy character. And it's a fascinating movie about the behind the scenes process of making a movie. I mean, I think it's one of the best documentaries about movie making um, and and just about to sh just showcasing Herzog and his craziness and his relationship with Klaus Kinski, the actor who was in many of his movies, who was equally, if not more insane. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And 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 documentary now this year in their season premiere did a great parody of Burden of Dreams. So it was cool to watch that having recently seen this movie. Nice. I got to check that out. Yes. Um, I didn't include any documentaries on my list, but I did consider Burden of Dreams and I considered Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers. I loved both of them. Yeah. Uh, they're both excellent. So I, I got to watch more of his films for sure. Yeah, he's a, he's a great filmmaker. Yeah. My number seven is a movie that had been on my watch list for a long time and I just finally got to it this year. And that is 1998's Dark City from Alex Proyas. Uh, an absolutely bananas sci-fi movie uh, <laughs> from the director of The Crow, of course, um, but also a lot of really bad sci-fi and action movies. But this one might be my favorite movie from him. Uh, I think I liked it a lot more than The Crow, really. Uh, it's basically The Matrix before The Matrix, but less complicated, but more insane at the same time. Like, it's just, uh, it's wild. The whole movie is just nonstop craziness, and it's so fast-paced, and uh, the, the score just goes at, like, 100% from beginning to end, and it's just... It's really its own thing. Like, there's not a lot of movies that go this hard. Um, I compared it already to The Matrix, but I would say also Speed Racer would be another good comparison, too, because of just how nuts it, like, it turns up the throttle all the way and then just keeps it going there from beginning to end. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to rewatching it again sometime. Nice. Yeah, I saw that movie in the theater. And wow. I uh, well, because I loved The Crow, as we talked about sure. on Awesome Movie Year. And I think I was super, super excited to see the next movie from the director of The Crow. And I remember being really disappointed in that movie in, you know, what was it? Is it 1998? 98. 98. Yeah. yeah. So when I was a teenager and I haven't revisited it since, but I know it has quite a cult following. And even though it was a failure at the box office, uh, Roger Ebert, I think, was a massive, massive fan yes. of that movie and was like advocating for it for years. So <laughs> I feel like it's something that I'd probably um, have a different opinion on if I watched it now. I got to look up that Ebert review. I bet it's a great, uh, a great read. <laughs> yeah, he loved I mean, that movie has a cult following, but Ebert was such a Proyas fan. I remember he really, really loved knowing the Nicolas Cage movie that Alex <laughs> Proyas directed, which I don't know if that was. He was on solid ground as much with that one. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what do you got for number six? So for number six, I'm back to the film noir in color, which was really, I mean, I would say go watch it, but they're not on Criterion anymore. But I'm sure these movies are available elsewhere, just not packaged together. But this is a movie actually from 1953, which is our most recent season of Awesome Movie Year. But we didn't talk about this on Awesome Movie Year. It's a film noir starring Marilyn Monroe called Niagara. And one of Marilyn Monroe's 
really best roles and one of the few movies where she had a chance to really get into sort of the psychological depths of her mm. character. Um, she plays this this very troubled woman who is um, staying at Niagara Falls with her husband, uh, played by Joseph Cotton, who, of course, is also a great, great actor. And she is having an affair and she's kind of scheming to get rid of her husband. And it's really like kind of the main characters are this this more upstanding couple who show up to Niagara Falls on their honeymoon and they're all like fresh faced and happy with each other in contrast to this broken couple. And of course, Joseph Cotton is a lot older than Marilyn Monroe. And so there's that mm. whole dynamic. And this younger couple, they get caught up in the the plot of Marilyn Monroe's character to to off her husband, which does not go well, and he doesn't actually die, and he's kind of skulking around in the background, even though people think he's dead. Um, but Marilyn Monroe is so good as this woman, even though she's sort of the villain, she is so sympathetic because of how how troubled she is, how mentally unstable she is, and you get the sense that the affair that she's having and the plot to kill her husband are all these just sort of desperate pleas for her to try to find stability in her life. So, mm. and it looks gorgeous like these noir color films do. It has a great setting at Niagara Falls. So, and uh, Marilyn Monroe had a great 1953 between this and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which we talked about and How to Marry a Millionaire. So, um, she, with Blonde out this year, I feel like it's the time for people to rediscover her greatness. So, Niagara from 1953. Yeah, when we covered Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, like I had mentioned, I don't really think I've seen any of her films, and I uh, I, I would like to watch this. I, I love crimes gone wrong type movies, so yes, it, it, sound, that, it that sounds that is great. exactly what this is. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check this one out. Sounds really good. I think our friend Chad Clinton Freeman was a fan of this one as well. Okay, right on. Was that a recommendation for the 53 season? I think it might have been, or maybe he just happened to mention it. So okay, uh, you know, I I appreciate that from Chad. Absolutely. Well, my number six is a movie that friend of the show Joe Black recommended to me before the film The Lost City came out with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. It's from the directors, Adam and Aaron Nee. It was their uh, smaller independent film from a few years back, 2015. It's called Band of Robbers. And it's so much fun. It uh, it stars Adam Nee uh, as well as um, Kyle Gallner, who's been having a really good year this year with Scream and Smile. Um, but they're basically grown up Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, who are still around, still getting into adventures. All of their adventures are starting to get uh, kind of crime based, and uh, they're basically bank robbers at this point. And uh, it's just. Speaking of crimes gone wrong, it's just a great little like indie crime gone wrong thriller uh, that's also very funny and really well acted and really well put together. And it, it's it's cool to see uh, that these guys got to then get together and make this big movie, The Lost City, which I, I think did fine. I don't know if it was like a big hit this year, but I think it did pretty good as far as comedies go. Uh, certainly better than some of the other comedies that we kind of were celebrating on our top 10 list. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's interesting to see and, and I hope to see more from these guys. Yeah, that sounds really fun and, and cool. Like, what a random concept to have Tom Sawyer yeah. and Huck Finn as as grown up bank robbers, but yeah, um, yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. I'd I'd love to see it. I I thought the Lost City was was fun. It was yeah. uh, not brilliant, but it was it was good like popcorn entertainment. I enjoyed it, so I, I'd be curious to see that. 
Absolutely. I, I'd love to hear what you think about it when you check it out. Yeah. Uh, what do you have for your number five? So number five is a movie that uh, Jason Harris, our awesome movie, your co-host kind of uh, bullied me into watching, but um, <laughs> I'm glad that he did. We had some some contentious discussions about Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, which I like, but not enough, I guess, for Jason, because he mm -hmm. just loves that movie so much. And so he was encouraging me to watch Bob Fosse's film Lenny from 1974, which is his biopic about Lenny Bruce. And and I did. And I really, really liked it. I liked it more than all that jazz. I feel like all that jazz is maybe too caught up in Fosse making a movie about himself. And it just kind of goes up its own ass there a lot. Mm -hmm. But here where he's making a movie about someone else, I think there is a lot of artistically daring things in this film like there are in all that jazz um it's shot in black and white and it has these kind of faux retrospective interview segments um to to give it context and it's a fascinating story about this incredibly self-destructive guy who got a little too caught up in his own hype, which is, I'm sure, something that Bob Fosse related to, as you can watch in, in all that jazz. Sure. And Dustin Hoffman is fantastic as Lenny Bruce. I feel like he's at least as good as, as Roy Scheider as the Bob Fosse stand in in all that jazz. And I mean, it does follow a lot of these biopic conventions that we're very used to by now, you know, the descent into drug use and, you know, the berating of the people in his life and pushing them away and all this stuff. But it's done really well. And I think it gives you a sense of how important Lenny Bruce was, but also how troubled and self-destructive he was and how ultimately his downfall came from his own personal habits and in a way from his sticking to his guns so uh, inflexibly that his trailblazing style became sort of a burden to him that brought him down. So it's a fascinating yeah. film. Yeah, absolutely. I loved it too. Dustin Hoffman is so good. And uh, as much as I hate to uh, agree with Jason, um, we might be talking about all that jazz more uh, I don't later, later down the list. You know, <laughs> you, you two are, uh, you're in the majority on that one. I'm yeah. loving it. <laughs> well, uh, my next is The Long Goodbye uh, from Robert Altman, uh, 1973. I loved Three Women so much when we did it on Awesome Movie Year that I was going to start like a whole marathon of Altman, and I never got around to it, but I did end up watching The Player, uh, which I absolutely loved, and then we ended up covering two. Uh, but I also watched this one, and it's right up there with both of those movies. I, he's three for three for me so far, and I can't wait to dig into more Altman. Uh, the Long Goodbye is so obviously the blueprint for like all of these kind of noir-flavored comedy mysteries that I love, like The Big Lebowski and this year's Confess Fletch, which we talked about on the Top Ten episode. Uh, Elliot Gould is just so good and so cool in this movie. It's like, it's it's a ridiculous kind of cool, but it's the kind of cool I love to see. And uh, yeah, I, I, the mystery is great. The comedy is great. Uh, it looks amazing. Everything about it is, is awesome. And uh, it, these are really some of my favorite kind of movies. Yeah, I love The Long Goodbye, and I'm glad that you watched it, and I'm glad that you are appreciating more Altman, and Elliot Gould is great in that, and the the apartment that he lives in, I always remember that crazy, like, uh, what is is it kind of like an elevator in like a like a cylinder thing that goes up mm -hmm. across this like passageway, and it's a real place. It's crazy. You can go you can go see it in L.A. Yeah, um, and yeah, that movie is that movie is fantastic. I love Robert Altman, and um, I I would say 
try to watch California Split with Elliot Gould and George Siegel yeah. as this pair of degenerate gamblers. It has a similar feel. It's definitely one of the best Altman movies, and you can see him working with Elliot Gould again. Great. That's movie. probably uh, next on my list. Absolutely. All right. I'm Good. looking Glad forward to, to it. it. Well, what do you got for number four? So number four is uh, a movie that I didn't watch for any reason other than to watch it, which is unfortunately not a chance that I have often enough, even though I see so many movies. But it is actually from 1977, which is a year that we covered on Awesome Movie Year, but we didn't talk about this film. Uh, It's called Between the Lines, directed by Joan Micklin Silver, and it is set at an alt-weekly newspaper in Boston, and which is sort of undergoing a uh, a change it's it's a publication that came up in like the counterculture 60s which is when alt weeklies kind of came into existence starting with the village voice and it's become commercially successful and now it's being sold off to this more corporate owner and it's basically the the identity crisis of these various characters who work at this quirky publication who you know maybe they don't make very much money but they have all this passion for it and it's a great ensemble kind of dramedy uh john hurd lindsey krauss jeff goldblum bruno kirby like a great cast of a lot of you know maybe somewhat underrated character actor kind of types as these journalists and it's it's maybe a little episodic just what these people do with their lives but it's it's a wonderful hangout movie And it really captures the flavor of Boston, of this kind of moment when the counterculture is kind of being dragged into the mainstream in the 1970s. And I worked at Alt Weeklies like 25 plus years later, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that they are dealing with in terms of corporate control versus journalistic interest and uh, personal type of writing versus serving advertisers and whatever really rang true to me from my experience having worked at Las Vegas Weekly here. So that meant something to me as well. Um, So it's just but it's just a really fun, like feel good kind of movie. So uh, Between the Lines from 1977. That's cool. I I don't think I can think of any other alt-weekly like based movies like that. That's like a really interesting setting. And you said right. it's a little episodic, but um, I'm as much as I prefer movies over shows, I could so picture a show based in an alt weekly. That oh, would be yeah. so much fun. Absolutely. It totally could have had a, a spinoff as uh, and in fact, I'm looking at Wikipedia now. It did have a oh. short lived TV spinoff. So there you go. I haven't seen that. I'm not familiar with it, but it's it's absolutely something that could happen. That sounds great. (laughs) Well, my number four, I said there was another Nicolas Cage uh, movie on my list. And I don't know how I never watched this one because whenever you watch like the Nicolas Cage losing his shit compilations on YouTube, this is like, this is the one, you know, Uh, it's Vampire's Kiss from 1988. This movie is freaking great. Like aside from the crazy Nicolas Cage moments that it's, you know, so infamous for, it's also just a really good movie, like an incredible like portrait of like toxic masculinity and, and uh, dealing with toxic people in the workplace. And uh, the way that Nicolas Cage treats his assistant Alma is just horrific, but is just such, such a, a perfectly put together film and his just descent into madness is so well acted and there's so many funny parts in it and i'll just 
shout out the uh, his coffin, which is uh, his couch flipped upside down, which is <laughs> just such a great, great little touch. Um, but there, there's so much to this movie. And like I said, we, we've seen a lot of the, the scenes in those YouTube compilations, but they don't even capture all of it. It's just bananas from beginning to end. Nice. Yeah, I've never seen this. I feel like this is a movie that inspires very polarized reactions. Mm-hmm. And I believe my sister, I saw on Letterboxd that she watched it this year as well and and gave it like one star or something and uh-huh. just absolutely hated it. So I could see somebody watching it and maybe thinking it's glorifying him in a way, like because he's an asshole. He's a yeah. piece of shit in this movie, you know, and that that's the point. You know, the point is that he's terrible and not to be celebrated whatsoever. And so I think maybe if that point is is lost, you might think of it in a very negative light. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen it, uh, but I'm curious about it. I feel like there's the one the is it like a, a photo of Nicolas Cage where he sort of got his mouth open and his eyes <laughs> yeah. bugged out. That's like one of the most yeah. common memes of him. And that's from this movie, right? Right. It is. Yeah. It's so good. The, yes. <laughs> I've seen that many times. Not the movie, yeah. but I've seen that photo. Absolutely. Well, uh, we're into our top three. What do you got for number three? So my number three is a pre-code comedy, which I I love. And I feel like a lot of times whenever I have a chance to just watch movies for fun, I'm going back to the 1930s and watching pre-code movies, which are always fascinating, even if sometimes they're not great. But this movie is great. It's called uh, Design for Living from 1933, directed by the great Ernst Lubitsch, which is and is one of his most famous films. And it's a uh, romantic dramedy, I guess, uh, about a woman who has two men kind of competing for her. Uh, Miriam Hopkins plays this, the woman and Frederick March and Gary Cooper play her her dueling suitors. And that doesn't sound like it's not that unique or interesting necessarily. Um, although it could be just the way that the acting and the comedy and the set pieces could be enjoyable with with just that. But what's great about this and what's great about what you can do in a pre-code movie is that at a certain point, they just enter into a polyamorous relationship. And mm. that's not something that you'd see in a Hollywood movie once the code was put in place. And it's not as progressive as a movie about that now might be. And I think yeah. ultimately it's portrayed more as like a compromise, like neither of these guys can really have her. And so she says, well, I just want you both. And they agree, even though that's not really what they want. Mm. Um, but it's it's really creative and fun. And it also gives its female lead this level of agency that she's the one calling the shots on this, these relationships the whole time. And it's just funny. It has, you know, the Lubitsch touch, as it's called, with this sparkling wit. And I mean, this is a classic. It doesn't need me to advocate for it, but um, it's still something that people should check out. I'm always in favor of anyone who wants to watch pre-code movies. If you've seen Babylon and you wonder Mm. about what was going on in Hollywood in the the late 20s and the early 30s, which is one of the absolute best, best, best periods of Hollywood, check out Design for Living and go from there. Yeah, that pre-code stuff, it really like it kind of throws any of your like preconceived notions about old movies out the window of what might actually be in them. And so, yeah, you just never know. And going back to things like that. And it sounds like a good one. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Number three for me is all that jazz. All right. um, I, I said it would be coming back up. Of course, we covered it on Awesome Movie Year. And uh, 
This is one of the rare movies that I watched, and as soon as the credits rolled, I ordered a copy of. I was like, I have to, you know, own this one. Yeah, uh, I'm not usually like a big musical guy, but um, you know, you're basically taking the the number one thing I compared it to is Charlie Kaufman. I think Charlie Kaufman is so inspired by this movie, whether it be Synecdoche, New York adaptation. Uh, it's such a clear influence, and then adding musical numbers by the great. Bob Fosse, you know, so it's just kind of has everything. And then Roy Schneider is just incredible. It's like a role of a lifetime. He's so good in it. And, uh, you know, again, I could see how like you weren't as taken by it as we were. I can totally get that. You know, it certainly is, uh, you know, indulgent as hell, but, um, it, it's just, it's so all encompassing of so many things as a creative person and, uh, just how in your head you can get when you're a creative person. Uh, it, it just spoke to me in so many different ways. And it's such an impressive movie at that, you know, being Bob Fozzi, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it is impressive and I, I like it. I just, it didn't it didn't speak to me in that in that same way it the the self indulgence i think just got too much for me especially in the third act but uh but you know another movie that is is a is an acknowledged classic it doesn't uh you know my my criticisms aren't really relevant on that one for sure we'll, we'll yeah. allow it we'll yeah. allow it what do you got for number 2 so number 2 is a movie that i uh watched because of Top Gun Maverick as, as that was coming out, I was writing a piece on the best Tom Cruise movies to watch online and tried to catch up with a couple of notable cruise movies that I had not seen. And this was one of them. And speaking of Martin Scorsese from earlier, it's the color of money directed by Martin Scorsese from 1986. And this is, I think considered one of Scorsese's lesser movies because this is from a time when he was a big deal, but he still wasn't, the Martin Scorsese of now, where basically he can do whatever he wants at any time. And yeah. he had to take work where he can get it. And so he's hired to make this sort of legacy sequel before legacy sequels were a big thing to The Hustler, this right. uh, the pool drama starring Paul Newman, which had come out, I think, like 25 years earlier. And so Paul Newman returns as fast Eddie Felsen, this pool hustler that he played in that film. But now he's older and he's sort of the mentor figure to this younger hotshot pool player played by Tom Cruise. And um, it's just a really, really good version of that. Tom Cruise and Paul Newman are both great and the the wary relationship they have. And it's not just like the cliche of, oh, they're antagonistic or this, this arrogant young guy doesn't believe that the old guy can teach him anything. And then he learns that he can. Like there's a little bit of that, but then they become antagonists again. And the whole climax of the movie is them competing against each other. Mm. And I just love that, even though it is in a lot of ways, this kind of crowd pleasing Hollywood type film, that it still subverts a lot of your expectations about what that story would be. Um, the acting is fantastic. Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, who I feel like has, I don't even know where she's gone. She's totally fallen off the map, but she's great. Yeah as the girlfriend of Tom Cruise's character who is sort of played between these two guys, uh, trying to make the peace between them and trying to get Tom Cruise to set his ego aside so he can actually like succeed and make money and make a life for them. And, you know, and Scorsese is a pro. Scorsese could direct anything and he brings all of his talent to this. Maybe this was a work for hire thing. Maybe it wasn't a passion project for him, but he absolutely gives it all that he has. So, I went into this knowing that it was maybe 
not considered one of his greatest films, but this might be, if not my favorite, one of my favorite Scorsese films. Right on. Yeah, I've actually never seen it, but I was going to watch it uh, after Maverick, uh, just like you're saying for your article. I was going to watch it and uh, I decided I wanted to uh, get around to watching The Hustler first, just, you know, to kind of see it back to back that way, sure. even though it's long time after. So I haven't gotten a chance, but I'll probably end up watching both of those this year at some point. Um, and I have a feeling I'll probably love it again. Maybe bring it up next year. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, but the way that you said that it's like the best version of that particular thing, I feel like that's what Top Gun Maverick is. You know? <laughs> it's the best yeah. version of uh, aerial fight, you know, military movie, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. Well, you know, I don't love Top Gun Maverick as much as you, but but there there, there is some similarity there, I think. And uh, yeah. and the, the Hustler is great, too, of course. Um, yeah. I mean, both of those are worth seeing. I think I had the Hustler on my version of this list a few years ago, the first time that I saw it. So I, but honestly, I think this is better than the hustler. Right on. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely looking forward to it. Uh, number two for me is a movie I watched because I knew it would be a puzzle piece for the movie bones and all. And that is badlands from Terrence Malick from 1973. Uh, I know you saw my comments about it, that it's like literally one of the best movies I've ever seen. It's like insanely how, how good this movie is. Um, I, you know, obviously Terrence Malick's films, you know, people talk about how beautiful they are and it definitely is, but more so than that, it's the performances from Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek and their dialogue. Like it's just the perfect, uh, capture of like that, that bored, aimless, american young people life and it just to me it, it almost felt like um watching a movie version of like some singer songwriter americana song you know and it's just it's perfect in everything that it sets out to do and the story from beginning to end i loved everything about it, it really there, there's nothing i could say a negative about it it's one of the best movies i've watched this year and uh it worked very well as a puzzle piece for bones and all, of course. That's, so it's important, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I had to use it. <laughs> yeah, that is great. And early Malik is, is so, so good. And even mid period Malik. And it's, it's disappointing to see those later films. I feel like everything that's great about his early movies, he kind of doubles down on in his more recent movies. And you think, why is this not great? Like, right. It just, right. it just doesn't, work the same way so yeah badlands is fantastic if you haven't seen uh days of heaven which is his next film i haven't i i think is even better than badlands i i love so much so i yeah. would definitely recommend seeing that and it's crazy that badlands is his first movie that's a debut it's, film and is that that's great. another thing yeah that's another thing that's absolutely insane yeah. <laughs> that's crazy so good oh man well we're on to our number ones what do you got so my number one is moonstruck i Yay, love moonstruck so much i nice. i didn't necessarily expect to and and like the color of money this is a movie that i watched for another roundup piece on best nicholas cage movies to watch and i'd seen a lot of nicholas cage movies but i wanted to catch up with a couple and this is one of them and it's just, I feel like we've talked about this. Maybe we talked about this on our regular top 10. It's the kind of thing that you think that it shouldn't work. It's a, such mm. a ridiculous concept, Yeah. but it it works so well. And it's, it's thanks to Nicolas Cage, who is great, but especially Cher is so mm -hmm. good in this movie. And, you know, she didn't act in a ton of stuff and, no. you know, had a period of acting a decent amount and then just kind of gave that up for whatever reason. 
And she, I mean, she won an Oscar for this movie, so it's not like she was unacknowledged, but um, it was, it's, it's just, it's so funny and weird and they like, it's a great romance, but I love the way the romance is like that both of the characters are like mad that they fell in love with each Uh other. It's like, this has ruined our lives. Why did this happen to us? Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's so weird and funny and a great, as you said, Italian-American film written by um an irish american i believe john patrick mm. shanley the playwright um and uh you know who who won an oscar for this as well and went on to write and direct a bunch of equally weird movies i think that don't you know work as well always but certainly yeah. a guy with a lot of ideas so yeah i just i just love this and i think maybe having norman jewison as the director who is this kind of old Hollywood workhorse guy. Maybe that is a good way to balance out the weirdness of the screenplay and whatever it is, it all just works together. Absolutely. I'll just add the old people actors in it are all (laughs) great. Vincent Gardenia, you know, Lupia Dukakis, like they're all just so good. And yeah, it's just a a great, uh, you know, piece, just everything kind of works together. So uh, great pick. My number one is, I said, there's a bunch of movies on this list. I just can't believe I have never seen before. Uh, But it's RoboCop from wow, <laughs> Paul Verhoeven. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, considering how much I love Starship Troopers, I don't know how I never went back and watched this. And it is the funniest, best like action movie satire, satire of America and our just overbearing police presence and just everything wrong with this country. And uh the best part about it is just like Starship Troopers, it gets to have its cake and eat it too, because it's also one of the best action movies ever. Like, it's everything all in one. And strangely, I saw the sequel in the theater opening weekend, and I think I was too young. We always joke on Awesome Movie here about the movies I was too young to watch. I, I remember the brain squishing, and I was like, you know, kind of squirming in my seat as a maybe 10-year-old or something. I don't know. But yeah, I never saw the original, though. And everything about it is so great. It's so funny. Uh, all the memes from it, are they all hit extra hard now. You know, <laughs> you know They were always funny to begin with. Now they're extra good. And uh, yeah, I, I just don't know how I never saw this. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's great. I agree with you. And I mean, I haven't... I'm trying to remember if I might have watched it again when the remake came out and I think mm-hmm. like 2014 or something like that. Um, yeah. So it, it's still, that was quite a while ago, but I did love this. And I, I remember RoboCop two, I think is not very good, no, but not really. I did love it as a kid. And I have, I may still have like a VHS tape with RoboCop two recorded off of like HBO nice. or something like that. And I think I loved it as a kid because it was more violent probably mm-hmm. than the original RoboCop. But yeah, I mean, it's great. And I, there's still, I, you know, I still remember I'll buy that for a dollar or whatever. Yes. It's something that just sticks in your mind for so long. And um, I, I'd, I'd love to watch RoboCop again. Cause I'm sure I'd find even more about it. That is, is clever and satirical and whatever. Um, even then if I saw it in 2014 or whatever. So great. Pick. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you have some honorable mentions you want to throw out there? Sure. Why not? Um, honestly, I looking through honorable mentions that I found were pretty much all awesome movie year related stuff, which is exciting because nice. it means I got to watch a bunch of good movies for that. Um, kind of a, a, a double recommendation. We did an episode on uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau's The Wages of Fear from 1953, and that is great. 
And also the remake from 1977, Sorcerer, directed by William Friedkin, is also yeah. great and is a good kind of remake because it keeps the core of what the original is about, but finds creative new approaches to certain elements of it. So I feel like these are good companion pieces that you could watch them back to back and you won't feel like it's you're repeating yourself or anything like that. The the tension of these guys driving these trucks full of explosives across these, uh, you know, treacherous roads are just fantastically done in both of those films we'd be we'd be lucky if more remakes take that kind of approach where it's like the 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 seed of the idea but then you know make it its own thing too right right and friedkin does that really really well and this is the kind of thing that i could see being remade again because it's based on a novel and i'm sure there's some other stuff in there that you could pull out and use um also for awesome movie year we watched rob reiner's a few good men speaking of tom cruise and this is a super cheesy movie but it's a movie where all the cheesy parts of it like work really well. The, yeah. The the grandstanding scenery chewing from Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth, all of that stuff. The the plot that, you know, culminates in this big courtroom showdown where people are vindicated and Tom Cruise is the arrogant hotshot lawyer, but like they're all really on their game here and the Aaron Sorkin screenplay is you know, maybe has some smugness, but not as much as later Aaron Sorkin, especially when he directs it himself. So just a fun, crowd-pleasing kind of movie. Um, And then lastly, I'll mention, we talked about Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which is a fantastic movie, but I had already seen. Um, But in conjunction, I watched a couple other Eastwood Westerns and the outlaw Josie Wales from 1976 is just this great kind of archetypal Eastwood you know, uh, outsider guy wandering the countryside, um, you know, dispensing justice while also being grumpy about it. And it's a great performance from him. Great direction. So uh, if you like Westerns, I mean, if you like Westerns, you've probably already seen it. But if you have it for some reason, (laughs) check out the Outlaw Josie Wales. Right on. Yeah, great, great picks there. Um, I almost was going to include uh, The Wages of Fear and Sorcerer on my list as well. They're, they're great. Yeah. For my honorable mentions, uh, so I'll put, I put together two awesome movie years for, uh, for one of them. Uh, that's Cruising from 1980, uh, which I thought was a fantastic, you know, undercover cop movie that kind of gives you a chance to see Al Pacino as the great actor that he is rather than like over the top Al Pacino that he eventually became. So uh, he's just so damn good in it. Uh, The other one, Cinema Paradiso, uh, 1989, which I know I liked more than both you and Jason, but um, you know, it, this year has been such a uh, year of celebrations of cinema and yes. Oh boy. Is that better than all of them? So I bet you got that a lot of use out of that as a puzzle piece this year. You damn right. I did. You damn (laughs) right. Another movie that I got a lot of use out of as a puzzle piece this year, fantastic planet from 1973, a bizarre animated film on this alien planet that has these tall, humanoid blue creatures protecting their environment so you can imagine i was able to use that uh for for a couple of things this year uh so yeah that's a a really cool movie and then the last honorable mention i have is called dog city the movie uh it's a jim henson movie from 1989 and uh we found this by accident because um gina was searching gifts for like dog freaking out or something like that to to do a, a harvey gif um of harvey losing his shit and uh we found this this uh puppet dog that looked just like harvey just like 
he, he was like holding a, a Tommy gun and he looked just like Harvey. We're like, what the hell is this? And we had to like go searching all over the internet looking for it. And sure enough, it's this uh, Jim Henson movie where uh, all these dogs, they like stake out this, uh, this bar and they're all gangsters. And it's like just a totally classic gangster story, but with uh, Jim Henson puppet dogs. And so there's so much humor in it that's definitely not for kids, which kind of makes you, you know, imagine that's probably why it's not as well known as a lot of the other Muppet stuff. But uh, it's great and it's super weird. And, you know, I love Isle of Dogs. And I feel like uh, if I had known about this movie back when we did the Isle of Dogs episode, it probably would have been a puzzle piece there, too. Huh. Yeah, I am not familiar with that. And as we talked about on Awesome Movie Year, I'm kind of lukewarm on on Henson and the Muppets and all that. But it does sound pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so it's a fun I'd one. Be curious to see that. And uh, and I'll I'll second you on cruising, which uh, I almost mentioned in my uh, my honorable mentions there. And I feel like you know that's a movie that is known for its controversy more mm. than its content. And you know it's worth a look just as like. As you said, a really good undercover cop drama with a really good Al Pacino performance. And a lot of the controversial stuff about it seems a little uh, not not really relevant anymore. And you can just watch it for what it is. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap this up, I actually got a voicemail from your awesome movie, your co-host, Jason Harris, with his list of his 10 favorite first time watches of 2022 so let's give that a listen and then maybe we'll come back and uh comment on a few of his picks all right dave here you go you wanted my top 10 you wanted me to send in the list and let you read it and just decimate it and just ruin it no way dave i'm not gonna let you interpret my list i have commandeered the show for my own segment by the way love what you're doing my top 10 films from other years that i watched for the first time this year number 10 secret honor Philip Baker Hall gives a tour de force one-man performance in this Robert Altman, I would say, lost film uh, about uh, Richard Nixon in his final night in the office. Number nine, The Killing, the 1955 movie that really put Stanley Kubrick on the map and one of the great actors of all time in this heist gone awry film. Uh, number eight, a little film called Predator. Yes, that's one I had never seen before. One of the great action movies of all time. The 80s really did rule for the greatest action movies. Number seven, The Sting. It's Newman. It's Redford pulling off one of the greatest con jobs on film ever. I'm sure if you had seen it in the theater, it would have been an absolute delight. Number six, Coda. Last year's best picture winner. I'm not going to lie. I cried and cried and cried and cried. They got me and they got me good. Number five, also from last year, The Green Knight. Uh, David Lowery mesmerized me with his colors, his shot selection, and his dark storytelling. I was just all in and enthralled on it. Number four, Man Bites Dog. One of the craziest, wildest, uh, most insane movies we've ever seen uh, on Awesome Movie Year. And just in life in general, the mockumentary following a serial killer takes all types of dark twists and turns and really just goes all for it. Number three, another one we watched on Awesome Movie Year, and the second Kubrick film on my list this year, it's The Shining. How did I never see The Shining? It's now my favorite horror movie of all time, and I just love the mind games of it. Number two, uh, not an Awesome Year movie, but an Awesome Year research movie when we were doing Bob Fosse. I watched Cabaret, and this is dazzling and maybe the best of all Fosse movies, and I think he's got 
probably three five-star movies in his uh, cadre right there, which is really incredible considering how few he directed. But Liza Minnelli, Joel Gray just tear up the screen. The musical numbers are incredible. And nobody directs musicals like Bob Fosse. And number one, also from researching another episode of Awesome Movie Year, it's the deer hunter, Michael Chiamino's three-plus-hour epic masterpiece. I watched this, and I was immediately taken and thought, I'm watching one of the greatest films ever made, and I really do believe that. This is one of the best movies ever made, from the American sequences to the war sequences in Vietnam to the return home. Uh, just incredible. That's my list. Top 10 watches from other years for the first time. You're welcome. So uh, what do you think? Like, were there any of those that were like surprising to you? Any that you're a big fan of? Um, well, I don't know that there were that many surprises in part because we talk a lot and I probably was aware that he had seen these movies and <laughs> yeah. mentioned it. He's talked about the deer hunter a million times, even yeah, on awesome movie year. Yeah. A lot of, right. A lot of awesome movie year stuff there. Um, I'm, I'm personally excited that he loved predator so much and that oh, he yeah. loved the shining so much because you know, I'm, I'm big on horror movies and he generally is not. So whenever he watches something like that, I'm always uh, expecting that he will be underwhelmed. So I'm glad that he was such a fan of those films, which which I uh, really, really like as well. And, you know, of course, Bob Fosse came up and I love Cabaret more oh, than yeah. all that jazz. So Cabaret is great. <laughs> glad to glad to see that on there. Um, and, you know, speaking of Robert Altman, Secret Honor is one that I haven't seen of Altman's, mm -hmm. but I definitely would be curious to check out. So, um, I mean, other than Coda, which I'm I'm one of the haters of. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> I feel like those are all pretty solid choices. I didn't really care for the Deer Hunter either, honestly. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I really liked it when I first watched it. Um, I have a feeling I would probably like it if I watch it again now. But. Yeah, it just didn't. I mean, a lot of the Chimino stuff that I think is a, a problem in Heaven's Gate which is, you know, notorious failure, I think is is a lot of it is there in The Deer Hunter 2, which is this massive acclaimed success. So yeah, doesn't work for me. But yeah, the main takeaway there is that Coda sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to watching The Killing. I know he's been talking that up a lot lately. And uh, Predator, I actually watched the same day as I watched RoboCop. And I haven't seen wow. that since I was a kid. Uh, holy shit, that movie rules. Um, yes. if, if I hadn't seen it, it would have made my list too. Like, you know, but I, I've only seen it that one time when I was younger. Uh, it's just awesome. I've never seen The Sting. I should probably watch that one of these days. Oh yeah, The Sting is great too. Yeah, uh, a lot yeah. of fun. And, you know, Newman and Redford, of course, a great team. Yeah, that Predator Robocop double feature, man. That's like the great... Whew. 12 year old boy in 1987 double feature you got going there oh man i had covid at the time and uh oh it was it was i was blowing my nose and just watching people get blown away so you know <laughs> i should actually i should make that double feature like an annual thing honestly it would just it's a reason to stay alive you know like <laughs> <laughs> yeah those those are those are great and i don't i don't know when the last time was that i saw uh predator because i don't i didn't rewatch it for for prey which was great um, yeah. In part, I think I just I'd seen it enough times or whatever, but it's certainly always something that's enjoyable to watch and so quotable to all the ridiculous lines. I ain't got time yeah. to bleed. And, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. the ultimate, like the, like the, the cast of all these tough guys, you know, it's just like one after another. It's it's great. Oh, yeah. It's, it's so good. What's um, 
the the scene where Bill Duke is shaving to like calm himself down, you know, <laughs> with That's the razor great. with no shaving cream, and yeah. he obviously doesn't even need to shave. He's just like yeah. <laughs> running it up and down his face for no reason. Oh, amazing stuff! Oh yes. man. Well, these were great lists, and this was a lot of fun, as it always is. Josh, tell people uh, where they can find you and Awesome Movie Year. Well, Awesome Movie Year, as we said, is, is one place where we discover a lot of these movies, which is one of the things that I love about it, getting to traverse film history and see movies that we haven't seen before that are great or sometimes not great. But uh, mm -hmm. either way, listen along with us and discover some movies for yourself. Uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And I think we're probably getting close to wrapping up our season on 1953 as this comes out. So uh, a lot of cool discoveries there. And uh, you can check me out at joshbellhateseverything.com, which has basically become just a repository for me to annually write about this thing, about my yeah. <laughs> first time watches is the only thing I end up updating on there anymore. So depending on my uh, diligence, it may or may not be there now, but it will be soon if it's not. Um, I'm also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, where you can follow along with the movies that I watch and guess which ones are my favorites for the year. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun game. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Josh, as always, it's a great time. Thanks for being back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Josh Bell. And I'm Jason Harrison. We co-host a podcast called Awesome Movie Year. Each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. We deep dive into these specific years and we pick out why they were such great years for films. We go over the biggest hits, the biggest flops, the best picture, and some personal picks, some cult classics. Years we've covered in past seasons include 1994, 2003, 1977, and 1984, and we've got all of film history to look forward to. So check us out at awesomemovieyear.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about some of our favorite first-time watches of 2022. Lots of great movies to go back and check out, and uh, it's always a fun time doing these episodes. I look forward to next year's with Josh, and uh, I hope you're enjoying the show. If you like what we do here on Piecing It Together, make sure you're subscribed wherever it is that you like to listen to podcasts, and if that app happens to have a five-star button, we'd appreciate it if you dropped us a quick rating. It helps make sure that more people check out the show. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod, join our Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And I told you about the Patreon at the top of the show, but, uh, you know, if you want to sign up that way, we appreciate it. Other than that, we got a lot more piecing it together on the way. So, uh, you know, keep an eye out for all that. Lots of episodes, lots of movies to cover, and it's 2023 now, so... Lots of new stuff to talk about, but I'm going to keep talking about my new album, More Content, which just came out December 30th. Uh, you can get the limited edition CD over on my Bandcamp, davidrosen.bandcamp.com. It's a really cool package that I put together, uh, all the artwork, the pictures from my wife, Gina, Gina Mazzoni Photography, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great album. I, I'm so proud of it, and people have been really enjoying it so far. I got some music videos on the way. You could also, of course, check it out on streaming. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, all that kind of stuff. So uh, check out the new album, More Content. And since we're talking about older movies on this episode, I'm not going to play a song for more content. I'm going to play an older song of mine 
How about the first track from my first album, Echoes in the Dark? The first track is called Dark Rain. I'm sure I've played it on the show before, but it's been a while. So let's play that, and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.